that in person has completely been cut out, email is so bombarded. You know, a prospect would get is getting 20x more emails from salespeople today than they did before, and you can just imagine the saturation. For being on the podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Uh, how are you doing today? Where are you calling from? Where are you? Toronto. Beautiful, Toronto? cold Toronto. <laughs> yeah, it's like negative 10 degrees outside today. Is it? I haven't been out. <laughs> it's so crazy. We're in lockdown. Mm-hmm. And when you, you know, live in the virtual world, essentially now there's really no going out. I don't know what it feels like to be outside anymore. Yeah. It's yeah, it's crazy. crazy. I'm in Markham, so we just got went into lockdown again as of this week. We started on right. Monday. And man, it's terrible. Like the only thing I've been doing during this whole COVID process is the gym. Right. That's that's my only escape is going to the gym. So every time we spiral into a lockdown and the gym shuts down, I'm I'm just yeah. like thrown off. My schedule gets thrown off. Yes. Is yours even open now or did you bring in something at home? No, um, our gym is a small gym. It's in the plaza. Right. So because it's small, right. it was able to keep kept open longer than the good life for the other ones. Right. And Markham wasn't in lockdown until this Monday. It just, it just went into, I guess they're preparing for the winter break and everyone going, you know, <laughs> visiting each other and stuff. And they're trying to prevent that. But um, yeah, we're like, it, it shut down. So what, what about you? Like, what are you doing to like stretch your legs, keep fit, you know, get away from like the sitting down all the time? You know, um, so I tried buying, you know, one of those exercise machines because mm-hmm. sometime in August, I knew that it was going to lock down and I knew, I, you know, I still love those fitness classes and the hits and the boot camps. And so now it's really, you know, put a mat on the floor and get it done. <laughs> you got to get it done. Otherwise, it gets, you know, it gets to you without being you know, active. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, it's funny. Like uh, me, my me, my wife actually moved into a new home a week before lockdown. Mm-hmm. So, like one week in, the entire world goes crazy, right? And yeah. we had to cancel all our furniture shipments and everything, and we were at an empty house for a good like two months. No yeah. furniture, like except for like our our mattress was on the floor, and like a, mm-hmm. and one couch and like a TV that sat on the floor for like two months. And uh, we're just like, what, what, like, how long is this going to happen, right? Like, at first it was funny, but then it kind of spiraled. But it's crazy how quickly this year has gone by. Like, it feels like last month that, like, we're watching, uh, you know, Justin Trudeau on TV telling us that <laughs> there's a pandemic happening and we're all going into lockdown. Um, yeah. And now 2020 has come to an end. How's, how's that shift been for you? You know, as a founder, running a startup, you know, shifting gears and focus, running virtual yeah. You know, speaking of shifting gears, we've done that quite a bit this year, and thankfully that has resulted in good things happening. I remember I was in San Francisco right when they announced the lockdown, and I was at the airport, and I'm like, shit, am I going to make it back, (laughs) or am I going to be stuck, you know, kind of in limbo? And um, so I made it back, things locked down, that was in March. And, uh, And then, you know, our customers, essentially, they all froze their budgets. You know, no spend in not any any regard. And so we were like, okay, what are we going to do? You know, and so we figured out this way to, you know, make ourselves our own customer. Mm. And so, you know, we serve mobile advertisers and we're like, okay, we're going to create an app of our own. And uh, that really helped us get through, you know, March to August. And, uh, you know, so those were the twists and the turns that we made in today. That was that ended up being a great decision because you know we got to test our software so well by being our own customer during those times, mm-hmm. and so it's been it's been quite a a winding road this year full of pivots and zigzags, but um, yeah, it definitely feels like it flew by. You know, the perception of time varies sometimes. Mm-hmm. When you're not having fun, it feels longer. When you're having fun, it feels shorter. So yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so let's talk a little about your product, um, FlyShot, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm going to bring it up on, on, my, on the screen here. I'm going to share my screen. I'm, I'm new to uh, Skype as well, so please give me a sec. <laughs> <laughs> okay, wait. That didn't do anything. 
All right. All right. We can see this, right? Yeah. Yep. All right, cool. So Flyshot, um, you guys help uh, spread promotional codes via screenshots yeah. rather than people having to type yeah. it in. That's that's really cool. Um, yeah. <laughs> I have ex like I think everyone's experienced this problem. So one of my one of my favorite things is uh, my buddy. He's really good at getting promo codes. I don't know how he has a whole network of people that are, are super into it, and he yeah. shares it in our group chat. You know, like uh, DoorDash codes, all these different codes. <laughs> And he does it so much that what he does is he actually actually paste the uh, copy and paste right into the thing, right? Because he's right. noticed like if you just screenshot it in, like it's just yeah. it's another hassle. But this makes things yeah. so much easier. So from what I see, how how this works mm -hmm. is you just take a screenshot of a promo code and then you upload it into whatever app that requires a promo code, and then it, yeah. you side loaded yeah. in. Absolutely. I'm just gonna put my phone. Absolutely. Exactly. So you don't have to remember alphanumeric codes anymore essentially. Mm -hmm. And one of the big advantages is that I'm not sure if you heard, but Apple is essentially cutting down any ad attribution. Mm -hmm. And so basically, um, you know, before, if you were DoorDash or if you were Uber Eats, you could say, you know, that promo code could be auto applied, right? If you were, if you had a click or if you had a link or if you got an email, let's say that, hey, you know, click this link, it's going to take you into the app and it's going to auto apply. But because of privacy, Apple has shut down all sorts of ad attribution, and this is starting in March 2021. Mm -hmm. And so if now, for example, let's say you saw an ad for DoorDash on Facebook or Instagram. Now, um, <laughs> so now if, if you were DoorDash and if you wanted to know that you as a user were acquired from Instagram or Facebook, then mm -hmm. you won't be able to. I mean, you won't be able to know if you as a user made a purchase inside DoorDash and attribute that to a Facebook ad. Hmm. As we speak, Facebook has launched this massive campaign. It just released about how Apple is Apple's new privacy measures are hurting small advertisers. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's it's a big problem. And so the other major advantage, aside from you know the ease of promo code redemption, is that we're able to generate conversion data for DoorDash in a very privacy friendly way. Mm. That's that's interesting. So where where do this problems come for you? Like like I, I see it's very intuitive, right? But why you personally? Why do you take this on as a product a project? It's a great question. So uh, so Flyshot originally started off as a solution for influencers, mm -hmm. right? And influencer campaigns are still the core of our business. Yes, it's promo code redemptions via a screenshot, but what you're taking a screenshot of is a is an image of an influencer. Excuse me, I'm just gonna put my phone on silent. It's just blowing yeah. up. Yeah. Yeah. So you're still taking a screenshot of an influencer's post, right? Mm -hmm. And conversion attribution for influencers has always been a challenge. Right? So when you whenever you bring up the word influencers, you know, largely most people cringe at the sound of it. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, influencers. You know, I've probably seen that person on Instagram. And although these people, you know, they put so much time and so much effort into creating their content, but there's so much, you know, this negative connotation around the industry. And, you know, being an advertiser at L'Oreal, we used to spend a million dollars a month on influencer mm -hmm. campaigns. I've seen how you know, uh, how terrible it can be from both sides, right? Mm -hmm. So with fraud, you're dealing with, you know, vanity KPIs. I don't know if that, you know, million dollars I spent even drove conversion sales, right? Mm -hmm. What am I driving? Am I driving, you know, these comments and the, uh, you know, random comments? I don't care about these random comments, which essentially made up, make up these engagement rate, mm -hmm. you know, vanity KPIs. And so, the whole idea was that we would, you know, we wanted to make influencer conversion tracking better, right? Give advertisers the ability to measure return on ad spend from their influencer spend. And promo codes were used by influencers a lot in a means of exclusive attribution, right? Because links, clicks, those are fine, but not everyone is in, you know, the state of making a purchase in that moment. Mm -hmm. And that's why links and clicks and ads, you know, sometimes... You know, you remember the seed is planted in your head, but you may come back a week later to purchase that product, but that ad doesn't get attributed because you didn't click and make a purchase through that link, right? And mm. so 
that way promo codes staying on content in perpetuity and not expecting users to convert in real time were in you know a better way of conversion attribution but conversion rates of promo codes are less than 0.02 percent right okay. so you're going to do it but like you know you got to remember it and is it enough for you to like copy paste that thing paste it into the input for like two dollars off five dollars mm -hmm. and so we found that naturally people were taking screenshots of the promo code and like why don't we just you know make our images special and just do it through screenshots and we'd get conversion attribution this way not mm -hmm. only influencers but really any visual content yeah definitely i mean it makes so much intuitive sense right like that's also very solves a very core problem for two parties right both marketers yeah, and, and the influencer side and also for the user right better user experience exactly Right. How was that journey like? Do you have like, who, like, did you make the app yourself? Did you have to learn how to make apps? Like, do you have a history of uh, being a technical founder? <laughs> yeah. So you know, I had a similar startup while I was at McGill, which sold for a small chunk of change, and okay. the tech behind it was very similar to what we have at Flyshot today. And you know, this was 2016. Um, mm -hmm. The IML image recognition at the time, and we still have a version of that that we use for Flyshot. And so, you know, that company got sold to this, you know, um, in the U.S. And so they, yeah. you know, sorry, you froze up there. Um, just, just go back. Um, you said the company sold. Yeah. Oh, oops. We just lost your video. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. So yeah. So that company, it was a small acquisition, right? So I was mm -hmm. essentially a in university. It was my final year at McGill, and. Uh, I was not very interested in classes, but I had a, a startup at that time called Gotta Find It. Mm -hmm. And what it did was that it essentially took images, right? So the content of images was focused on retail. And we would run, you know, we would scrape databases of all these massive retailers and train an algo to understand visuals. Right? Mm -hmm. So machine learning, essentially, image recognition. Nice. So our algo got pretty good to an extent that you know, it was able to say, okay, that's a red dress with polka dots. <laughs> nice. And we sold it to this data firm who wanted an image recognition algorithm. Mm -hmm. And so that was a good chunk of change. And and so before I graduated, L'Oreal really liked what I did at the time. You know, they were mm -hmm. buying me, and so they hired me right out of school. Wow. So that was a good year and a half there. <laughs> I mean. I mean that 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 itself right there is such a testament to like grit and innovation at at, at like uh, especially the student right like most students I, I so I, I do a few talks at a few high schools now right uh, like not during COVID but this is like last year and the year before and one of the things we 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 kind of wanted to promote was the idea of innovation as a student right there used to there's like a, still like a lot of uh, I, I guess uh, a lot of trepidation from students from pursuing innovation because they think that they have to get accredited first they have to go out and get a you know get a degree yeah. i understand the market space you know get a job and then eventually when they know everything they can transfer over right mm -hmm. um you know but being in a student uh, being a student launching a company getting it acquired and that leading you to getting a job i mean i mean that itself shows the power of innovate the innovation space and what's really happening now especially within our university ecosystems right um, can you share a little bit about that? What took you to, as a university student, want to pursue innovation to build that build technology? <laughs> so, you know, it, it was the same thing that also made me hate my job at L'Oreal, by the way. So <laughs> I feel like it's a personality trait, you know, yeah. people just have it and that I've never been a, you know, a big fan of bureaucracy and staying within a box, you know, mm. don't do too well in... Um, you know, in a, in a very straight line, in a very confined um, situation, I think I just need to be creating, mm. right? Creating and, do, to, you know, doing something new and leading has always been a part of my thing. And that, that started was my second. The first one was just a random one that we did. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we still have good programs for innovation. There was the Dobson Cup, you know, the startup, like, challenge and things. So mm -hmm. it was involved and won a few K here and there. And yeah. so it, it helped. I, get, I was in business school, so, you know, it helped here and there yeah. you know, to foster that. Uh, but, but I feel like it's innate, 
right? Mm. It has to have, it has to come from within because yeah. no one can tell you, hey, don't, don't focus on your studies. Go launch a startup. <laughs> that has yeah. to be something that comes from within. Yeah, absolutely. Because if anything, all your support mechanisms are saying the opposite, right? Just focus yeah. on this, yeah. right? Just do this and it'll lead something great, right? That's what we've always been told, right? Study hard and then good things will come. But it's we're turning it more into an ecosystem. Like, um, like if for anyone who's paying attention, you know, the, uh, from everywhere from the federal government to the provincial governments came out and talked about economic recovery from COVID, right? Mm -hmm. The economic recovery uh, is predicted to come all from in the innovation sector. Right. Yeah, and no. Canada, yeah. like from all sectors, are doubling down on the innovators because the innovators are going to create the new company. They're going to hire the new people and create and foster new job, job growth in novel ways. Mm -hmm. And what's really interesting is the, the resourcing and the methodology going behind this is trying to figure out how holistically to support people like yourself. Right. Who from a young age just want to create things, want to build things and, and test new markets and, and, you know, escape that that kind of confines of the bureaucracy of the nine to five of being told what to do. How, like, you know, going, going back to that, you know, going to L'Oreal after running your own company and getting acquired, what was that experience like? Was it was it your first corporate job? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was terrible. I, you know, uh, <laughs> I still remember how I had this really hardcore French boss. And all I wanted to do, I would just come home and I just wait for the work day to end. Even though it was it was fun, right? Because I had good, you know, responsibilities. I was managing for, you know, global brands, but there was still this itch, you know, mm -hmm. because I wanted to do new things and were, um, you know, there were there were always limits, right? And so there was always like, okay, but the budget, oh, but this and that, and uh, you know, the budget was. It was good. We had about a million dollars to spend, but the risk aversion was there, right? So one of my frustrations, particularly over there, was how we would just drop all this money in traditional mechanisms, right? Because when you're an enterprise, when you're a corporate, just shifting gears with all of that resource and all of that legacy is, is tough. And you have so many stakeholders, so much bureaucracy, and it just... You know, that, that feeling of being nimble and being able to make your own decisions, you know, that's something that uh, <laughs> that I craved. Mm. And, um, and I would just leave work and try to go and think of what I could do to escape. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, well, in all respects, though, I, you know, I joke about it now, but it was a great experience. I don't think I would be here without that. So, mm -hmm. you know, at least if anything, it taught me what I did not want. <laughs> Yeah, one of one of my mentors, uh, Greg Raffram from from UFT, he's a prof there. He talked about this, right? Like, there's a, there's this entrepreneurial mind, um, this personality type, right? Mm -hmm. so a lot of entrepreneurs they don't hit that bank or hit that hit that you know that um, multi million dollar idea right off the bat, or yeah. build that lifetime business right off the bat. You know, they go through these curves, they build and you know rinse and repeat. Either sell off, the company fails, or something happens, or it's you know it doesn't it doesn't produce enough, and they go off and and, and get like a corporate job, and everyone else takes a job as their long term thing, and like a business as you know a secondary, or mm -hmm. or like a side hustle to be like secondary to to augment that. You know, they mm -hmm. think of themselves as career people. And everything else is like the secondary to their career. But there's an entrepreneurial personality type that takes going to a job as a learning curve. This yeah. is short term. This is secondary to me. What I'm trying to get is money, resources, knowledge, connections. And then once I have a certain amount or I have developed an idea enough, I'm going to escape. Right? Yeah. They, want, yeah. they want to get out. Yeah. And, you know, they go through these curves where, you know, they'll go, go to a job, get, get the resources, get ideas, get connections, all this stuff, start a company. Right. Yeah. And it might take a few of these launch curves back and forth. They might go through a, like a career path, but that's secondary to what they want to do. Yeah. Right? Um, do you see yourself having like a career path, let's say for, you know, what are reasons and, and you need to go back to an five? Would you go back to something similar to what you did? No. <laughs> no, I'm done with that. That was enough for me. It was it was tough. Uh, you know, if there's a spectrum of excuse me, it's just like stop notifications. So. <laughs> yeah um yeah so you know what if there's a spectrum of that of the person who considers the nine to five as uh you know uh as temporary uh i'm definitely at the end of it so i cannot 
myself going back even no matter what happens I mean that would just be in a very grievous situation which I don't think I'll let us get to mm -hmm. uh, so you know thankfully flash I don't see that yeah definitely let's talk about the the machine learning the technical components that came into this right building an app uh, and mm -hmm. that atmosphere of, of learning right sorry it's frozen right now I think uh, our internet's a little wonky Oh, how about now? Yeah, I can hear you, but everything's frozen. Oh. <laughs> Hopefully, the recording does not catch this. Right. <laughs> but um, yeah, I can still hear you. So let's we'll keep going until things catch up. Um, yeah, so he's going back to that mentality, right? Like the the, mm -hmm. the inflection curve of a technology product, right? You said you went to business school. How did you acquire the knowledge to build a technology product? Did you have to learn it yourself? Did you partner up with people that could provide it? What part of it did you have to learn? What was that process like? Yeah. So one thing I can say for sure, and you know, there's a few uh, university kids that you know asked me for this the same thing. You know, what can I learn in school? You know, to be honest, really, there's nothing in curriculum that mm -hmm. is particularly going to teach you how to build a business, nothing. Mm -hmm. Nothing that I learned in my three and a half years at Miguel that taught me. It taught me, you know, school, it taught me, you know, discipline, if anything. Like you have exams and you got to study whether you crammed the night before or you're diligent throughout the year. Mm -hmm. Or um, sometimes presentation skills, sometimes, um, you know, creating decks and presentations, which is really the grunt work, right? But how, um, what my experience was with running those companies and you know launching them was it was completely self-learned like i learned how to design just as a self-taught thing and that really helped me for example create prototypes right and design apps and create the front end of things um and mm. so that was just a self-taught thing since i was in high school i just picked up photoshop and you know now i can you know just create uh, create assets like everything on the mm -hmm. UCLA website i mean you know i can do myself and mm -hmm. so, so that was a self-taught thing. And then obviously, you know, I had a CTO while over there. So, you know, being able to communicate with developers, being able to, you know, communicate and understand, um, you know, the actual technicals of the back end, how exactly are you going to create an infrastructure, how exactly would to the back end and the front end work, you know, the architecture of the software, what is the plan, what are the user flows, the journeys. And so all of that comes with, you know, trial and error and learning and talking and, you know, researching and just exploring. Mm -hmm. So it has to be something that students would have to do on this side. It's not taught at university. Definitely. All right. I guess Skype still hasn't caught up to our video. Could you try um, turning off your video and turning it back on? Hopefully that just restarts it. How about now? Yeah, there you go. Yeah, okay. Good. We're back. All right. Back. Yeah, no, I think uh, you're, you're touching a real good point there, right? Um, so, you know, acquiring these skills, right? It didn't come from university. It was self-taught. You focused on what you were good at, a.k.a. the design side of things. I'm assuming you found a partner or partners that could provide uh, the technical capabilities, you know, combine those skill sets to produce something together, right? Um, did you enter an incubator at all during this time? Yeah, we're part of the DMZ. Mm -hmm. no. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Of course, that Ryerson. Um, you know, how's that? How's that process been? Like, what, what was the main learning curves you got out of the DMZ, and what kind of support have you received? Uh, well, so they're investors. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so DMZ invested in the business. Um, they actually also helped me with my PR, so mm -hmm. my citizenship, right? So I came here as an international student, and um, you know, I was applying for my immigration, and mm -hmm. so they sponsored me through the DMZ to stay in Canada. That's working, you know, happening now. So thanks to that. Wow. And um, yeah, and you know, the, we chat every two weeks. They're good advisors. They're mm -hmm. lots of support. They've helped. You know, they sponsored all our uh, cloud cloud credits. That was fun. Nice. <laughs> we have to get more of those. <laughs> 100k, 200k bill <laughs> that the, the the pr function is uh is interesting i, I didn't realize that dmt did that that's good on them um where are you from originally india india so you came here for school stayed for work and launched launched a business yeah, yeah. 
Definitely. Um, you have, uh, do you have any plans of going back there? Um, you want to stay in Canada? What would that look like for you? Uh, you know, right before uh, COVID hit, I was picturing myself in California. Mm. The wildfires and until really things are going downhill over there. And so um, I'm really not committed to any particular you know, country. Of course, from the way it looks like Toronto is a really nice place to stay. Mm. Um, so definitely not going back to India or Dubai where my parents are based. Mm. Um, so, yeah, definitely North America. Yeah. Yeah, I mean this this idea of being like a digital nomad, it's becoming more realistic now. Now that everything's virtual and running or running remote. Exactly. Right? I, I have a few friends who are like this. You know, they float between here to uh, and and uh, Vancouver. They come back and forth. They live, you know live and work. Um, you know, and talking about California, like you know, there's a mass exodus from California. Exactly, you're talking about the wildfires, you know, the high cost of living. Right, all these different uh, different factors coming into play. Right, um, yeah. Like, like, are you are you are you a proponent of this guy kind of living style, where like you know you kind of float between place to place, but your it's main line of work can work separately, you know, work from anywhere. I, you know what, that's a great question. I've been thinking about that. I like having the base. Mm. <laughs> you know, I, I don't. I'm not exactly a nomad. Um, yeah. I I don't mind vacations, but mm-hmm. I don't. You know, I, I have to have a good base. I like my monitor set up and everything. Obviously, that's not possible if you're just, you know, going from place to place. And so, um, so yeah, having a good home base is key, but just, you know, in the right spot where, and today it's true, it's virtual, right? So mm-hmm. it's, you know, what is the right spot? The, the notion of the right spot has changed before the requirements were that you wanted to be around people, right? So if mm-hmm. you live in San Francisco, the idea was that you want to, you know, go to a cafe and serendipitously run into someone who can 10x you, for example. <laughs> that's not possible. I don't know if that would be possible even with the vaccine and, you know, considering there's other factors as to why there's an exodus in California. And so, uh, so yeah, it's changed. It's, mm-hmm. uh, it's, you know, there's a lot of people that I know that are moving to Austin and to Denver. And yeah. so who knows, you know, how much time is going to take those cities to become like San Francisco. So it's really a flex right now. No, definitely. Uh, that's a problem that I'm, I'm, I'm really, really interested in because uh, especially with an innovation industry, right? A lot of things is serendipity, uh, like, uh, like, you know, random meetings that happens, yeah. right? You know, you go to a conference, you go to a coffee shop, um, yeah. you know, you go to, you know, you're like in person in an incubator and you bump into somebody that can potentially become like a funder, a client, a investor, a partner, an employee. Like, you know, you you, you know that the whole point of cities was always that, right? The cities where things were happening, right? The high density of people, things are always happening. You you know, you randomly just bump into things that just happen and, and you get dragged into it, right? And one of the highest indication of success was proximity, right? They say location, location, location. Where are you? Are you near the action, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and now with like um, especially with COVID accelerated this, you know, the idea of people moving away, they're moving away from the city centers, moving away from where the action is. Yeah. And they're creating online environments, trying and trying to recreate that. But mm-hmm. I don't, you know I mean? Like, I don't know if it's at the same degree of the spontaneity of it, is it in person. And I don't know how to get to that point where we can do that. What are you doing now to kind of, uh, you know, meet people or like get get new support? Are, are you going? Are you, are you doing any online conferences? Like, what does that look like for you? Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, LinkedIn is, you know, is what we're, you know, we're we think it can uh, create those sporadic moments. You know, the serendipity you see like in social networks, digital social networks, in a way, it can even ex- exponentiate. You know, mm-hmm. that mingle. Um, and so it is digital and you know that, you know, when they did this poll as to whether people, you know, New York, for example, right now is a ghost town, there's no one mm-hmm. there mm-hmm. and people, a lot of people have fled and why would you want to live in, you know, a small apartment when you can have a big home at the outskirts mm-hmm. and so, um, so it's not going to come back anytime soon. And so, so that's why social networks, we believe are obviously the place to be, you know, People don't like um, when you message them, for example, but they like, uh, you know, they like, for example, just talking about ads, right? And mm-hmm. sales, 
particular you know about sales and so when we're talking with customers right so sporadically appearing in front of their face through an ad is far more effective than you know than even going to a conference what we find right mm -hmm. you would go to conferences for those minglings now it's just run an ad and people that are interested will inbound yeah. right and so it has exponentiated it is in fact converts better and so um so in that regard, it's uh, social networks are pretty great. There's digital conferences. There's different softwares. These are companies that are growing three thousand percent. You know, diff digital conference platforms. Mm -hmm. Right. I know a few of these companies are just there's crazy growth, which is awesome. Yeah. And uh, yeah. So so yeah, we're obviously aware of all of these different you know avenues and trying to make ourselves visible. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So uh, speaking of LinkedIn, um, I mean, there's there's been a like, long time debate between marketers and salespeople, right? <laughs> which department and which facility is more important, right? Or more effective. And it's yeah. uh, like, you know, the the, the comedy page, uh, Corporate Bro, it really captures captures this. They, 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 they do a really good skit on, uh, on Instagram and now they're navigated, um, I migrated over to LinkedIn as well, um, where they talk about, you know, marketers versus salespeople. The idea that, you know, marketers, you know, they use tools and automation to get in front of people to capture attention and yeah. redirect it towards the product. Salespeople actually go out and grind through the phones yeah. and actually talk to people, right? Marketers <laughs> use, marketers, uh, you know, use technology. It's a sell to technology. Salespeople yeah. sell through people, yeah. right? Do you find that, you know, there's a healthy blend between the two? Do you prefer one or the other? Are you a heavy marketer? I am very heavily tilting towards marketing right mm. now because, because there is no more in-person interaction, right? So if you think about a salesperson today in the age of COVID, they can't just walk into a conference and, uh, you know, cold calling. I mean, come on, that's, mm. we can say that's dead. But yeah. what were the other avenues salespeople would have? They would have mm -hmm. email and then they would have conferences and group meetings and, you know, different uh, in-person possibilities. But email was largely the main channel. Mm -hmm. And email today, because that that in-person has completely been cut out, email is so bombarded. You know, a prospect would get is getting 20x more emails from salespeople today than they did before. And you can just imagine the saturation. So you don't want to be a salesperson sending cold emails today. <laughs> just don't mm -hmm. do it. No, get mm -hmm. to it. You know, even personally, when I when I get an email and you know I get so many sales emails, and I get a small whiff that this person is trying to sell to me, bye. I just I may not even read it because I'm so saturated by it. Mm -hmm. But search and and capitalizing on intent has become much more powerful because if I need something and I'm already a pre-qualified buyer, and I go and search for it, or if I'm being targeted correctly, then my conversion rate is significantly higher. And so I feel like marketing is winning and salespeople should just use more of those tools. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I'm actually on the camp of sales right now. I, I haven't had a sales career, an active sales career. And I, and I love talking to people. And I feel like there's always that presence of people, especially when you're selling B2B, especially to larger enterprises. Knowing the people behind the scenes is so important. I feel like yeah. in consumer sales, like when you're, when you're selling something direct to consumer, marketing is heavily key. But yeah. B2B business, it still requires a lot of personalization and talking to the people, Yeah. right? So I, I feel like there's a, there's a healthy balance for the markets, but you're, you're absolutely right. Mark, it is shifting heavily towards uh, marketing and talking about sales culture. Like, yeah, call, call, cold calling is almost dead, right? Yeah. Uh, Gmail, uh, Gmail and uh, even Apple Mail are looking into um, switching off cold emails. Yeah. So if you're not connected to somebody, they're going to actually automatically put them into a separate folder. Yeah. Right? So cold emailing is, is pretty much being gone soon. Right. Yeah. Even on LinkedIn, you're seeing this toxic culture of like these automation bots people are using yeah. just to just to like get, uh, to get, get in touch with people. And like it's so unauthentic that people are get e easily uh, turned off from it. Right. Yeah. I mean, the way we got connected is uh, it's a LinkedIn reach out. Yeah. Right? yeah I reached out. Totally. Go ahead. Yeah. I mean, what you're doing is much more authentic to build a connection and a relationship much more than a cold email. Absolutely. And that's one of the reasons I love podcasting. And I think one of the, one of the main growths of podcasts, right? There's actually like there's over a million podcasters now, podcasts, mm -hmm. uh, like podcast channels happening. And less than I think about less than 10,000 
are actually like profit generating uh, like uh, organizations. I think their podcast being the main line of work, mm-hmm. right? But podcasts meant I think are, are filling this new category of uh, this this strategic gap of connection. How to build connection, right? Like yeah. how do we have more authentic interaction with people rather than just cold calling and just trying to get to the point or a cold email or yeah. like a quick outreach, right? How do we take the time to build develop uh, either an idea together? Know, develop a, a content channel together. You know, and, you know, do something of worth first before we yeah. engage anything else. Yeah. And I see a lot of companies now developing, like podcasts, uh, not mm-hmm. just for the content, but just for the, the discovery element of it. Yeah, absolutely. You said it right. It's giving something before you expect that person to engage, because you know today we're spoiled as mm-hmm. a consumer, as a business buyer, because you have value being thrown to you from so many different st- sources, right? And so, by the way, the video is freezing. I I don't know if that's happening on your end. Uh, we're actually good on my end. I'm not sure what's going on today. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> all good. Yeah. So, so, yeah, so it's, you know, so there's so much value that's being thrown. And, you know, if you're just going out there and saying, hey, buy from me, right, as a cold, cold email, it's just mm-hmm. not going to work because that person has their value being generated that that person is themselves going and looking out and searching. Mm-hmm. And there's this energy dynamic, right? So the more that you lean towards someone, the more they lean back. So mm-hmm. how do you maintain this uh, equilibrium with whoever you're trying to sell to so you're not being too pushy? Because, mm-hmm. you know, one that you see right now is every single company is putting out white paper ads on LinkedIn, right? Mm-hmm. Download my white paper here. Do you want to know about this thing? Download my white paper. Give me your lead and my salespeople <laughs> will yeah. reach out to you eventually. And, you know, people have just started downloading those white papers and the conversion rates on those is going down. Mm. People know that, yeah, I'm going to get a call, but I'm not really, I just want to have a look, right? I'm not interested mm-hmm. in buying for you, but thanks for the info. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's happening. And so there's this oversaturation of these tactics so that you have to really generate value up front um, to get that other person interested that, yeah, you know, that company, I will buy from them. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I think uh, that's great analysis. Definitely what's happening right now. So going back to your platform with Flyshot, um, what type of apps are you, are, are you going after? Like, you know, looking at your website, you know, you see gaming apps, you're seeing, you know, like, you know, uh, these influencer apps, uh, influencer, uh, influencer, um, sorry, channels on social media, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I feel like, you know, you, you have such a widespread use of it. How do you segment different types of people? How do you, how do you reach out to them? You have channels, uh, anything you can share? Any tips? Yeah. Uh, so in terms of segments, gaming is a big vertical mm-hmm. for us. Like they're the most hit by Apple's privacy update. Yeah. Right? I don't know if you play games, but if you do, you'll probably see like 10 other ads inside that game. And that's an mm. $80 billion industry. Mm-hmm. And so that's wiped away starting mm. March. And there's mm-hmm. a big, you know, there's a big problem right now in the industry because of that. And so gaming is a big um, segment for us. And there's delivery apps, um, you know, really the big spenders. Right. And so the shopping apps, delivery apps, and then we have subscription apps, Mm -hmm. right? All of these apps on the app store that have subscriptions. And so we segment them based on their in-app transactions because that's what we're focused on, right? We're driving purchases, transactions, Mm -hmm. reporting that data. And so Instagram is our main channel from the Mm -hmm. influencer side of things. And that in terms of reaching out, well, you know, we're doing the same thing. We're mm-hmm. creating content, creating value, you know, doing research and you know, just giving it to people for free. And if mm-hmm. that resonates with them and if that, you know, helps them up front, then they will come on their own. And not even trying to create these sneaky funnels, you know, nothing sneaky, but true genuine value. If it helps, mm-hmm. you, then it's good. That's what we care about. Yeah, I mean, um, off your website, really cool. And the idea of putting QR codes on the, on the edges of um, edges of uh, posts, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm assuming you screenshot that and then you yep. upload that into whatever system uh, you need to claim it. You know, I, I'm assuming the link will be on the bio. Go to the website, upload it, and then boom, it gets uh, applied. Exactly. That's really cool. Right. Let, 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 let's, let's talk a little about that. Like uh, what, what type of uh, users have you got there? What's the feedback been? 
Yeah. So we actually recently did a survey, which we'll be posting on LinkedIn. Survey as in a poll. Yeah. And uh, that's still actually happening. And the recent one that we got, I'm so excited about these numbers. So we had influencers um, do, you know, those polls on Instagram stories, right? Mm -hmm. So basically, so one had about 100K plus followers. And uh, I think 1,700 people took part in that poll. And 2,000% more users, mm -hmm. right? decided to go for the screenshot option rather than remember promo codes. Mm -hmm. you know, I was expecting 200% because you know people, not everyone is an early adopter, but it was 2000. So it was 24 and 526. The wow. difference between, I would rather screenshot a photo and just upload it yep. to an app as opposed to remember this alphanumeric code, um, which not all the time now. Because conversion attribution is going to go away naturally mm. for Apple, and they're gonna they cannot use those generic terms for codes anymore if they want to continue doing you know, if they want to use this channel for conversion attribution. So the codes are gonna get more complex, right? Mm -hmm. So something like Friday five or December whatever you can still remember, but they are going to get more complex, and no one wants to remember these complex codes. So some of it is kind of self-explanatory, but the evidence is here. So 2,000% more people will do the screenshots than promo codes. Yeah. What does the competitive landscape look like here? Because it just seems so, it seems so intuitive, but I haven't seen anyone else be doing this. Yeah. Um, there's actually no one right now. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah. so, yeah, uh, there's, so there's this company that does something similar in the fashion space. Mm. Um, it's, I don't think they're using the screenshot tech as much and it's only, you know, for their own app is what I've seen. Mm -hmm. Um, but, um, uh, there's no one really that's using screenshots for promo codes. Oh, definitely. Uh, <laughs> how easy is it to like upload this QR code? Like let's say you're posting a picture or a video. Do you have to edit it on a separate system, like on your system? Like how does that work? You mean how it gets to Instagram or how? You yeah, take so let's say you take a picture either yeah. natively on Instagram or through your photo app. What's the steps? Like, how do you get the QR code there? How did we get the QR code? You as how does the user, how does, it, how does the influencer or anyone using FlyShot get right. the, the QR code? Right. How right. do you install that? Exactly. So the influencer uses our app, right? Mm -hmm. Only for them. And yeah. so assuming that's a DoorDash campaign, right? So DoorDash mm -hmm. sends. So we have 3.2 million influencers on the platform. They choose the ones they want. And uh, so the ones that get chosen, they go through our app and our app does something special to their images, which mm -hmm. also includes imprinting the QR code. And they just save it to their camera roll and upload it to Instagram. Oh, that's okay. So that's as easy. So all the influencers that do is create content, right? Yep. The, the, your system will Im, Im, uh, embed that uh, QR code and the, and the tracking, tracking pixel into it right away they post onto their channel yep and it, 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 it tracks exactly so tracks you do screenshot you open doordash and where you would traditionally input the promo code that's where you go and upload it and it that's will automatically so you're kind of operating more of a marketplace right for uh, for advertisers who want to work with influencers so you offer a service as well to find influencers within your within your platform yeah, yeah. So we have all of the traditional influencer campaign management features built in. Obviously, that's not a focus because that's been, you know, it's, it's common, right? That's yeah. all influencer platforms have that. But our focus is the conversion data. And so, but that said, yes, you can, you know, once you set up the promotion, you set up a campaign, you invite the influencers, you can chat with them. Um, you, uh, you know, they get approvals from you. They can review the content, gets published. And then they review the analytics. Yeah, that that, that makes sense. For, for when it comes to influencers, do you have to go out and get these influencers onto your platform yourself, or do you pull them from API? Like, how does that work? So there's 3.2 million that mm -hmm. emails that we have, right, okay. connected to their profiles and connected to their engagement rates. And so we have a partner in this space, and we, you know, we do it together. Mm. And so advertisers just say, okay, I want to work with you, you, and you. And they get an email saying from Flyshot saying that DoorDash wants to sponsor your content on Instagram. They just accept it, install our app, say, I want to work with you, and everything else is handled that way. That's, that's amazing. So you have, uh, you, you mentioned DoorDash a few times. I'm, I'm assuming they're a client. <laughs> <laughs> Well, a similar delivery app, but we just created a demo around that, so it's stuck in my head. <laughs> okay, okay, gotcha. Yeah, so so that's that's pretty intuitive, 
All right. So, you know, you're growing this channel. Um, it seems pretty intuitive. You know, there's gaming, there's influencers involved. What do you feel about TikTok? You know, you, you talked about Instagram influencers. Are you working with TikTok at all? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, we decided not to go to TikTok right now simply because the buyer, the users of TikTok are still Gen Z. Mm. And so the thing is that we're focused on driving transactions and purchases. And, you know, that comes with purchasing power. Right. And so because although gaming works really well on TikTok um, and, you know, we intend to spend more time on gaming apps, but other apps, conversion rates on Instagram are just higher until the TikTok audience matures a little bit and they become millennials. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they become, uh, yeah. Have you know, disposable income. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. They enter their 20s. Yeah. <laughs> That, that's an interesting analysis because um, I was wondering, like TikTok, like Instagram, you know, there's a lot of monetization options that are available. You know, you can have run your shop, um, you know, you can, you know, have links to other things, all that kind of stuff. But TikTok still seems like, you know, virgin territory. It's still just just pure content. There's very yeah. little, um, you know, little, little businesses built into that other than just pure content. Yeah, yeah. And you know what? Advertisers have explored this and they have all said similar things and that the large demographic of TikTok are still Gen Z, right? They're still teenagers. And so, you know, the, the sell through is a little bit higher depending on your segment, right? So mm -hmm. if you're selling clothing, then, you know, you have a purchaser on Instagram that tends to be between, you know, largely in their 20s on average, 25 to 27 is the average age of Instagram. Whereas on TikTok, it's about 13 to 14, right? Gotcha. So, but that audience will mature and at the right time, we'll be there. Definitely. So, I mean, what, what, let's talk about some goals with Flyshot. Like, you know, mm -hmm. do, do you see yourself like, um, you know, as like an operator, like building this and then uh, getting acquired by a bigger company, selling it off? Or do you want to grow this into like, into a, into a monster agency? Like, what does that look like? It's a great question. Um, so... I'm not going to comment on that because mm -hmm. I'll let the future say, although yeah. we have a very, you know, acquisitable technology. So mm -hmm. we, we know that, you know, there's going to be some potential acquires in the horizon already. We've gotten a few offers, uh, but uh, it's definitely four to five years down the horizon at the right time. We'll gotcha. <laughs> yeah. It's so the, the, of the two, of course. Yeah. I mean, that's gearing up to, you know, what do you see your future leading up to, right? Do you feel yourself more as a builder, innovator who are trying to solve problems and build things towards it? Or do you find yourself more as an operator as in like, once you have a business, you want to get better and better at like running that business and making it, making it would be foremost. I, I like building. Yeah. I like building and, and I like investing too. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, one of the things that we did, you know, the app that we mentioned on the side, that's an app for philanthropy, yeah. right? And helping out, uh, you know, people that have been suffering. And so if you shop through the app, it's like a rewards app, you get funds, you can donate to charities of your choice. And so um, I imagine myself selling it in about five years and moving into venture, back into venture because I was in venture right before this and uh or doing something of my own we'll see but mm -hmm. it's an ipo it seems less likely than an acquisition <laughs> <laughs> yeah um you, so you spoke about venture um are you talking about venture capital were you on the investment side yeah so uh when i moved to toronto i got a job at a fund which mm -hmm. is where i was right before flyshot so was on the other side of the table in terms of analyzing companies and getting them to the committee and the diligence and so yeah <laughs> that works <laughs> no that's that's cool that you play both roles right i think it's super important um one of the things that really threw me was talking to vcs and seeing what their mindset was because being on the innovative side you see these people as the money people right it's like okay you're trying to break down my baby and see how much, how much of the financials make sense and, you know, try to quantify everything. Whereas I put in this blood, sweat and tears into it. And, and you get very defensive about it, but mm -hmm. talking to VCs and how they justify valuations and how they, how they, how they, how they figure out value to things is such a unique mindset to a tool set you need to have, right. In part of your uh, business development process, right. Yeah. How's that guided your thinking when, it, when it's being on the other side of that table? Yeah, totally. So also run a business, right? People sometimes forget in that they have, they run a business too. 
and their business is basically to invest in you know in one company that's going to return the fund even though they're going to invest in 10 companies or 20 companies in the year they don't know who that one company is that's going to get them the 100x mm-hmm. but it's probably always one out of the 20 or the 50 that returns the fund the others you know 50 percent flop and the others are kind of in the middle right and yeah so- those wins and those wins are unpredictable. You talk to any VC, they cannot predict what was that one company that returned. <laughs> and so, and so they're always thinking from that mindset and that, you know, I want to invest in a company that can potentially return the fund. And so they're looking big picture. And so they're looking at, you know, um, can this sell for a hundred X, right? Mm-hmm. They're, they're thinking about, they're thinking about growth. They're thinking about the future and the vision. And, um, and yeah, I mean, you know, if you put yourself in their shoes, you would too, <laughs> right? And so yep. it's 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 totally interesting being on the other side of the table because you're right. Sometimes you know they are grilling you, um, but then you just have to play with it and you know, and then just say that yeah, I mean, this is why I think it's so. And if you don't want it, next. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. One of the interesting things about the venture space is the kind of the, the differences and different stages people who play in the different stages have. So angels and seed level um, uh, investors, right? Whether it be you know angels and independents or uh, seed levels as part of the uh, part of the, uh, part of the fund. No, they generally because they have to. They bet on bet on the on the people on the on the innovator on on the inventor. You know, they they like having a long term relationship with the with the individual, understanding them, see how their communication is back and forth, how open they are, how trustworthy they are, and it's very guttural, like. Uh, Mohan from uh, Good News Ventures came on. You know, he, he, you know, they they invest, uh, you know, seed stage, uh, 250k to uh, 500k into companies. Generally, uh, in coordination with other VCs. And he talks about this. He's like, you know, uh, you know, when asked, it's like, how do you find, like, how do you know the company to invest into? And he's like, oh, we take the time to know the person behind it. We 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 judge the company because it's too early to get financial. It's too early to get any any other kind of traction. You really had to judge the person. How you know how what's the work ethic? How do, how much do they care about the idea? How do they communicate with you? Right? Like how how open are they? And it's almost like a gut feeling because they've been on the, on the innovation side too. They're previous engineers and all that, so they they invest in there. But then you talk to like a Series A level like VC, and at this point, you know you have some financials, you have some traction, you have revenue. You're you know escaping that value of death. You're you actually have uh, like you know the things that you can quantify. Mm-hmm. But still, you're also doing uh, the, doing both. You know, quantifying as much as you can. You're getting those financials, but you're also reading the person, right? Mm-hmm. And you're reading the team, their past accomplishments and developments, where you think you're going, right? And then there, there's a mix between you know the, the 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 hard science and the soft science, right? Behind that. But then you look at institutional funds like Georgian Ventures, like Georgian Ventures. They won't even get. You can't even get a meeting with their associate unless you pass their qualifying stage, which is like a like a, they have an AI qualifier that's reading all these different metrics, you know, that they're pulling from different sources, using those metrics uh, to figure out, you know, how do you, how do they fit within their risk portfolio, and all these different numbers and calculations. And then if 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 you meet that threshold, then the, an associate will then talk to you to even get you uh, access to that fund, right? And it's so interesting seeing the different levels and how they work and function and play where you know if you were to go back to venture where would you go that's a good question <laughs> so the early stage you know the later yeah. stages somewhere in between you know what um even though the later stage guys make the most mm. because uh dilution yeah um uh i love angel investors because they may not get the highest returns because of you know all those clauses that go into and all of the mm-hmm. dilution that occurs. Um, they're the true heroes because they believed in the company and they betted on the person compared to you know an analyst saying, yeah, looks good. Obviously, it looks good. It's been looking good for the last two years, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so it's 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 kind of a no-brainer. I'm not a no-brainer, but it's less of a brainer if you say at that stage. So. I would go early stage. I would go pre-seed because, you know, it's uh, if you are truly betting on the winners, right? Because mm-hmm. there's the other there's the other trade-off as well. Because 
look, if you're if you're a Series B fund and you're putting in you know fifty million dollars on average in ten companies a year, and you're expecting five x returns because the exit is around the corner, and so your returns are kind of predictable, right? Mm-hmm. They're more predictable than the pre-seed investor who's going to bet on that one win out of mm-hmm. his 20 or 50 company portfolio. Yeah. So, uh, so that guy though, right? For the big wins, that guy is going to that guy is going to return 300x if he really lucks out. Mm-hmm. Right? For example, Honey, you know, is one of our competitors in the web space, right? So the pre-seed investors in Honey, uh, Ludlow Ventures, and this other fund. They, they made 300x from mm-hmm. at the pre-seed stage, right? No one knew that a browser extension would sell for $4 billion to PayPal, but it did, right? And so they made 300x on $150, 150K, I believe, some, in some, uh, some of ballpark investment. And they were a hero, right? Mm. The fund five times over. Yeah. So I would go at the pre-seed stage because... You know, you're right. It is about investing in the person. Absolutely. I agree with that, too. Mm-hmm. And, and I would bet on the person as well at the pre-seed stage. Yeah, definitely. I mean, just to, to wrap up here, right, like um, the idea of investing, investing, right? I think it's becoming more and more prevalent now just mm-hmm. because of COVID and just because of lockdowns and all, all the stuff going on. Like, you know, the ability to uh, to do business has shifted a lot. Right. And people are looking to diversify. And one of the things that uh, entrepreneurs do before they even put capital in. Mm-hmm. And the one, one thing I'm really interested in itself is how do you invest into companies, uh, you know, seed in innovation without injecting capital? You know, for those who don't have the capital. Right. And one of the, the surest ways is uh, being an advisor. Right. Joining mm-hmm. an early stage company, you know, taking a tiny bit of equity. Um, I think it's a, a Founders Institute. They put out a great uh, sample document on how to, you know, what kind of documents you sign as, as, a, as, a, as an advisor. Take like, you mm-hmm. know, a point of a fraction, how to qualify your time and your value, right? Uh, take like, you know, 0.8% of a company, spend like, you know, a few hours a month with that company. And through just your advice on, you know, your, your area of expertise, like let's say for you, you know, the marketing, the marketing know-how and understanding and trade that in turn for a little bit of equity and, and, and inject that kind of knowledge and know-how and uh, advisory kind of services into a company you know, depriving that value, right? It, and you can do that for about, you know, a few companies, a few hours each month, right? Yeah. Would you ever see yourself doing that kind of advisory role? Yeah, totally. Um, you know, there are, we have some great advisors. Um, mm. But, you know, one of the things that I found with advisors and it's it's how much you get out of them. Yeah. <laughs> the advisor, because when, let's say you're giving 0.5%. Mm-hmm. to an advisory board and you have four advisors and when you allocated it and you know assuming your advisors are busy people right mm-hmm. that they have their own businesses or their own funds or whatever um they're very likely you know unless they're like your best buddy and you know mm-hmm. you're talking to them every day it's your job as the founder to go and get what you need from them right yeah, like yeah. in order to replace that equity and whatever you give the options that you give to them and so what i find is that a lot of people <laughs> you know, build up these large advisory boards, but they don't have a plan on what they're actually going to do to get from that, you know, to like, you know, close the loop, right? Mm. What do you that advisor? What advice are you getting? How did that person help you in, in exchange for the equity? Yeah. And I find that doesn't happen a lot. And founders just end up giving that, you know, 0.5 to a percent sometimes to advisors. Um, so, um, I would only do it with companies that I know I will be able to spend time with and mm. actually vote because time is precious. Um, so, yeah, uh, because otherwise it gets sour, right? Yeah. Because the founder's like, well, I gave you equity. You didn't do shit. <laughs> yeah. So you don't want that situation. No, absolutely. Um, I guess the last follow-up question on this is, how do you uh, how, how do you personally do it? Like, how do you judge a the right uh, the right advisor, right? And how do you keep them accountable? How do you keep yourself accountable and making their time? Like, how do you uh, how do you operate? It's picking the right people, right? Mm. The people that you already have a relationship with that you can iMessage at 10 p.m. on Saturday if you have a question, right? And you know that person's going to reciprocate. And um, and just those people and even if and and see if you can get some value add before you decide to give away equity. Right. Mm-hmm. And if you 
you decide to make sure there's a cliff. So it doesn't vest until there's at least one milestone met. Definitely. Awesome. Tanya, thank you so much for joining us. You know, this hour kind of flew by. This isn't really interesting. I love see, you know, hearing from your, uh, you know, especially your marketing side knowledge uh, of how you took that into a technology product multiple times now, right? How you learned to escape the 905 and, you know, figure out what you, what you love to do. Uh, it's been a really interesting conversation. Stick around for a few minutes. We'll do a quick debrief. But for everyone else watching, thank you for joining us. Thank you.